we are humbled to be in your presence this morning. Pray as we open your word that you would hit us right where we need to be this morning. We pray in your name. Amen. You have a seat. For communion today, uh, we are moving on to a new soul care question. Again, we had, we're, we've been in the rhythm of taking a question two weeks at a time. So we could take a question, then reflect on it for the week, and then revisit it. But again, uh, we've kind of got to rifle through them here before Advent uh, starts. So we are going four questions in four weeks. Uh, and hopefully this past week, you got to do some of that deep breathing. I know I did a lot when I was driving. I'm sitting behind a, a semi that's going a little slower than I'd like. Just, again, that one, two, three. <sighs> it was all good. Uh, I actually had a really good week, so I hope you did too. This week's question is, am I honest in all my actions and words, or do I exaggerate? I've never exaggerated, uh, nor lied in my entire... Yeah, no, that's a lie right there. Uh, this is an interesting question, because I think it can go in several different directions. Uh, obviously, when we're talking about exaggerating, um, you, know, you tend to think of the fish story, right? I caught, I caught a fish that was this big, when really it was, it was this big. So, and then it, the more times you tell that story, that fish continues to grow. In reality, though, that fish never grew, right? Uh, I had a, a, an experience with a student when I was in high school, another student who, uh, again, all the high schoolers have heard this story, uh, but there was a kid who was known as, like, the liar of the entire school. That sounds, that sounds like a weird thing, but it was almost every single thing that came out of his mouth was a lie. And so I'm choosing to share with you his most fantastic lie this morning. Uh, he knew that me and my best friend Brian, uh, we loved baseball. So he came up to us in chemistry one day, and he was like, hey, you two, uh, would you do, like, tickets to one of the Cubs games coming up? And we're like, well, yeah, but... Uh, why would you just give us tickets? He's like, oh, well, my, my dad, he actually has season tickets, uh, and we're choosing to give some of those away. Believable, right? So like, yeah, all right, cool. Uh, let us know when and, and where the seats are and all that, and yeah, we're totally down to, to take those tickets off your hands. He goes, yeah, they're actually really cool seats, too. They're right behind the pitcher mound. And that's when we both kind of looked at each other and we're like, wait, behind the pitcher's mound is like the rest of the infield. And then you have the out. Are you talking like the bleachers, like out in center field? Because that's amazing. Like, that would be awesome. He's like, no, no, no. Literally, they're right behind the pitcher's mound. And we look at each other again like, what are you, there are no seats on the field. He's like, no, no. See, these seats are special seats. Most people don't even know that they're there. You see, if you look closely at the Wrigley Field ball diamond, you'll see that there's actually a small net behind the mound. And we're like, no, you're lying. He's like, yeah, and beneath that net are our seats. So the entire game, we get to actually be like in the action, staring, he didn't think this part through, at the pitcher's butt. <laughs> uh, so, so we're, again, we just, we, we, we said, we kind of let him go with it. Uh, and then those tickets never came. And when we brought it up again, he's like, oh, yeah, well, they had to, they had to remove the seats for, for safety reasons. This is the same kid who told us that his first car was a Ferrari, uh, that he had three jobs in high school, all that were in other states. And again, when you, find, when you run into someone who's a perpetual liar, it's not only hard to trust them, it's hard to take anything that they say seriously. Uh, so even if you, know, you get to a point where that person needs to share something deep, share something that they're hurting with, that they need help with, 
it's hard to take them take their words with any uh, with any weight. Another way that I thought of this this week, because uh, again, exaggerate. I don't, I don't want to necessarily look at it just in a negative light. It's maybe you're a little too optimistic. For me, I am habitually late. It's never on purpose. It's always, oh, I, I, I want to be there at 5 o'clock, but that doesn't work when you leave for a 10-minute drive at 4.56. Uh, so maybe, again, maybe, you, maybe you're misleading in terms of um, like your intentions. Maybe you just need to take a step back and, and let your intention, start making your intentions match your actions. So at some point this week, I would encourage you, if you deal with a liar in your life, to take a step back and, and have a conversation with them. Now, not one that's like biting and rude, uh, but I'm sure that we all have that family member who we're going to be with this week who tends to exaggerate the stories. Instead of calling them out, have a side conversation and maybe tell them, like, hey, do you realize like, all these lies, what they do to our relationship or to the relationship of our family? Um, or, again, if you're, if you're in my boat where you have these intentions that you exaggerate a little bit, uh, you're not necessarily dishonest. You just kind of push the limits of what's right and reasonable. Uh, Try and, stick to, try and stick to your intentions this week. Um, you're going to have about 30 seconds to, to think that over and start praying and, and asking God to, to point that person out of your life or uh, start working on, on that yourself. As soon as that's over, a song will begin to play, and you can go to one of four stations, two in the back, two in the front, um, to receive communion this morning. What a great word to end on. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for what you've done for us. Thank you. Well, um, servers are going to come here and receive the morning offering, and I, I just wanted to piggyback a moment on what you were saying there. The idea of calling out the uh, family liar at Thanksgiving, that could be a little intense. You know, yeah. I'd talk about a way to choke. But anyway, um, it's funny, though, as you're, as you're talking about that, I'm thinking about a story from my life. I was, I was young, first grade, second grade, Walked a handful of blocks up and back from school, and I was coming back home up Locust Street, walking by myself, and I found half a robin's egg, and it was the coolest thing. I brought it, I brought it into the house, and I'm holding it in my hand, and I, I said, Mom, look, look at this, and, and she was kind of, she's like, oh, that's really neat, you know, kind of proud, and I said, yeah, it was the neatest thing. I was holding this robin's egg, and, and it hatched. It hatched in my hand. And, and the baby came out, and it flew away. <laughs> and my mom said, that is so neat. And, you know, for years, I thought she believed me. <laughs> I think I might have been better served by my mother if she'd have said, that is an amazing story and a complete fabrication. <laughs> uh, I think it would have been helpful to me. I'm, I'm not kidding. It was, I was telling Sherry this morning uh, back at Sound that... Um, for years, as a kid, I didn't know that when you hummed, you heard it outside. People heard it outside of your head. So I'm sitting in second grade. <laughs> Teacher's like, "Who's humming?" And I didn't you know you that? could hear yeah. that. These, uh, so what I'm talking about this morning is kind of these moments of of self delusion that when someone loving can come along and say, "Great story," but ugh, really. Um, it, it may not go well, the person may not receive it well, 
But the fact that they know you know helps them to know you know, and they know, and now they know. Right? Sorry. Okay, there, anyway. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. Let's go to the links real quick. Uh, the, our, our, our list of permalinks are growing here. So every, every week you pull out your phone. You may want to test them out now. You can go straight to the Bible app and get today's readings. You can, you can go to the reading of the week. You can actually hit watch live, although that may be rather disconcerting, watching us while we're talking. There's probably like a, you know, a, a minute lag, and it'll be very confusing. And then you can also listen to the podcast later in the week. We have a link there for the membership seminar uh, coming up in January, as well as making coffee. If you'd like to get involved in making coffee, that would be great. Go ahead and tell us about this afternoon. God provided you some great climate conditions for what's happening today. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. I've had like five or six people come up to me like, hey, are we still playing football? I'm like, absolutely. Why would that (laughs) stop us, right? Uh, I think you might disown me if I canceled football because of a little bit of snow, Mr. Buffalo. So yeah, we are absolutely playing football this afternoon. Uh, from 12 to 2 or 12 until our hands can't handle the ball anymore. Uh, so that'll be a lot of fun. Hope to see you out there. Again, we're going to the Shanahan Junior High soccer field. We'll have a field set up and we'll have water and everything out there for you. Uh, so you just need to show up and uh, come have some fun with us. Then after that, we have a special night at Revive. We have Revive Thanksgiving dinner from 5 to 8. It's a great opportunity for you high schoolers to invite a friend because it's a no-stress environment, and you're going to get to eat some amazing food from Mr. Haug. It's going to be Chad sent out. me a picture yesterday of the smoked turkey. Oh, my word. I wanted, I to, I wanted to lick my screen. He, <laughs> it was amazing. <laughs> he tells me this morning, he comes up, he's like, hey, I've got some pies that I need to, I need to bring in so I don't have to bring them just in later. Just bring them I'm in like, my car. Yeah, yeah, do, yeah. The blue truck sitting right out there. If you would just like throw them in the back, that'd be great. So yeah, it's going to be a great time. I uh, hope to see that. Again, that's five to eight tonight. Good. Very good. Anything else? Uh, there is no... After tonight, we are taking this Wednesday for refuge and next Sunday off. Uh, just with so Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving craziness. Break. Yep. Mm-hmm. We're taking a little Thanksgiving break for both groups. So we'll hit it uh, as soon as we come back uh, after Thanksgiving. So you saw what we're doing. Sherry, next slide. Um, let you know what we're doing for Christmas Eve. We, we've kind of debated what to do with Christmas Eve, wanting to know, you know, the best way to use the day. It's, it's fun when we're all able to be together in one place as a church family. We're a little bit too big to all crowd in one room. And then you have, like, kids and all this stuff. What can we do? And I was having this great conversation the other day with Dave, Dave Morey about, you know, making sure that, like, with the gym and whatever, we're leveraging everything we have to its fullest redemptive potential. And as we're Thinking through this, we, we thought, why not do this? Why not have one Christmas Eve service but two separate experiences? So you've got the Christmas Eve service that happens in here with you know a little bit more contemplative, live fire, things yeah. like that, you know, passing the candle, all that sort of thing. But then have Christmas Eve also going on over in the gym that's a lot more family-friendly fun, and instead of live fire, they'll have glow, glow sticks, sticks, which yeah, is, you know, it's gonna be really cool. pass the glow stick yeah. Christmas candle and whatever, and, and it gives you an opportunity to really uh, be with your kid in Christmas Eve, but not, you know, not worry about, oh, are they going to shout out, or are they going to grab the candle and burn the church down, or something like that, and it's not going to be like a mandatory, sorry, you have a four-year-old, you got to go that way, but it just provides a couple of different options of ways to celebrate uh, Christmas Eve together and yet all be in one place at one time and enjoy our time together. So I'm really, I'm excited about the opportunity and 
part of the reason sure. we're bringing it up today is we will be going off to Thanksgiving this week, seeing family and whatever. And it may be a great conversation to just bring up with your family. Hey, our church is trying something new. Uh, you know, you may have invited them to this a thousand times, and they're just like, you know, candlelight, Christmas carols, blah, blah, blah. Now, but, then, but then you say, but we're going to have glow sticks. Yeah. And they're and like, whoa. You know. Again, stick to the question this week. Don't exaggerate and say, yeah, we're going to have a glow stick razor for Christmas Eve. Like, no. <laughs> right. But no, it'll be, it'll be a different kind of experience that might actually pique some imagination. They might go, hey, that, you know, I'd love to be able to enjoy that with my family in a little different way. So so two different experiences. We'll, we're try, we like to try things, you know? Like to try them out. So do you know which one you're going to? I'll probably be in the real fire room. Real fire? Yeah. You, you, like, you like to burn things down. Yeah. I've watched you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I like the whole church property. So, all right. So anyway, thanks. I, I keep that in mind. Three o'clock. You know, you wonder maybe why we do three o'clock. Personally, I'm a, I like six, seven o'clock when it's dark and whatever, or even midnight when you got the snow falling and all that. But we have found that with families needing to get on to the next thing, getting to where they're going and whatever, uh, three has been by far our best attended Christmas Eve service. So, so that's the time we went with. Uh, let's talk to God right now. Father in heaven, we are grateful for you. We are um, just uh, tremendously blessed as a people to have a day set aside that's recognized by by people who love you and people don't even recognize your existence. A day to say thank you. How we need that. How we need a day to just express gratitude. We don't do it often enough. It is so easy for us to, to go straight to grumble. It is so easy for us to turn on our, our favorite news station and just scream at the darkness. We need a day to say thank you. And I'm grateful uh, that we get the chance to do that and that that might actually bleed over into the rest of our life. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've been reading Leviticus. Is that inspirational or what? What a party. I mean, you're reading Leviticus. I know for some of you, Leviticus, when you do whole Bible reading, you kind of go Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy, you know, Leviticus and Numbers, you just do the woo, leaping over Leviticus, let's go. But um, we're going to talk a little bit about this this morning and, and kind of have some fun with it. Our, our society has um, certain laws that protect purity, purity of our food, purity of uh, the medications that we take. We have, a, we have a whole branch of the government, Food and Drug Administration, that is a purity watchdog. They, they protect us this way. However, sometimes their standards are a little bit surprising. You hear what they are and you go, oh, really? Um, food standards that the FDA approves sometimes are a little loose, or so I'm told. I found this on the internet, and it might be totally false, but it makes for a great sermon illustration, okay? So anyway, little exaggeration perhaps. I don't know, but it's on the internet. It's true, right? It's all true out there. I've read it. It's all true. Apple butter. Do you like apple butter? Anybody like apple butter? I am told that if apple butter averages four or five rodent hairs per hundred grams, or if it has five whole insects, not counting mites and aphids, by the way, they don't have a problem with mites and aphids. That's okay. Uh, the FDA will pull that from the shelf. I just want you to think about that the next time you're slathering apple butter on your biscuit at Cracker Barrel, okay? Mushrooms. I love mushrooms. I may never eat one again. 15 grams of mushrooms are okay unless they contain an average of 20 or more maggots of any size. So up to 20, eat up. 
<sighs> yeah, there go the mushrooms. Fig paste, fig paste. I'm kind of glad I never use this stuff anyway. If there are more than 13 insect heads per hundred, the FDA will toss it out. And now, for some reason, the rest of the body is okay. They must not want us to look at their little faces as we go to eat it. I don't know what that's all about. That's just kind of really strange. Coffee beans. Okay, this one hits home. I know some of you are already jittery, and now you're getting more jittery. Coffee beans are only withdrawn from the shelf if an average of 10% or more is insect-infested. Hot dogs. You don't even want to go there. Just forget it. You know, take out all the impurities and all you're eating is a bun. And the bun's not good for you either. So what are you going to do? All things being equal, uh, we truly prefer purity, don't we? I want coffee that is 100% bug-free. That's the way it is. We prefer purity. When it comes to our food, we are very much in favor of purity. But when it comes to our lives, we give ourselves a degree of gratitude. What, what do we say? We're only human. We're only human. What do you expect? We're prepared to put up with a lower standard of purity when it comes to our lives. But here's the thing. Unlike the FDA, who seems to be comfortable with a sliding scale of purity, God's definition of holiness is 100% purity. No exception. God is perfectly holy, 100% pure, and we are not. We are impure people desperately seeking a way to grow to be more like God, to grow more pure, to grow more holy. How in the world, we, how in the world do we do this? I don't know if you've been doing the, the reading uh, along with the Bible Project. You, you watched a video this week on holiness. It's a beautiful video that talks about the way that God imparts his holiness to us. When we touch something with impurity, we make it impure. But when God touches us with purity, we become pure through his purity. The answer to becoming pure is we walk with the God who is holy and he changes us. First, he makes us holy or pure through his cleansing power and grace. And then he teaches us to grow in holiness as we learn to walk in his ways. We become holy before God when we enter into a relationship with him through Jesus, who paid for our sins so we wouldn't have to because we couldn't. That is our position. We are holy. And at the same time, we continue to grow in the practice of holiness throughout our lives. Here is God's call for us. In Leviticus 11, he says, I am the Lord your God. You must consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. He ends by saying, therefore, you must be holy because I am holy. To be just like our dad, just like our father. He wants us to be holy. Now the truth revealed in Leviticus peels back the facade of self-righteousness and reveals the true condition of our hearts and lives. The message of this book is both painful and freeing. It is painful because it reveals the depth of our sin. It shows us who we really are. And it is freeing because it reveals a God of holiness who has the power to make us more like him than we ever dreamed possible. In Exodus 19, we come to the foot of Mount Sinai. This is the mountain of God. Here we see a ragtag group of, of frightened, grumbling fugitives, slaves. They, they have no real sense of identity yet, and they have no real clear knowledge of God. 
They are thoroughly impure. They're ready to run back to Egypt at the first sign of danger. What is amazing is that God is banking his hope to redeem the world on this group of people. God longs to teach these people another way of life besides grasping and clutching and grabbing the way that they've grown accustomed to. In effort to help these people see the magnitude of his plan, he says this in Exodus chapter 19. We read the, the Moses climbed the mountain to appear before God. And the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, Give these instructions to the family of Jacob. Announce it to the descendants of Israel. Remember, you know by now that's the same guy. His old name, his new name. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. You know how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And if you will only obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on earth. For all the earth belongs to me, and you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. This is the message you must give to my people, Israel. You can almost see this fearful group of wanderers standing in stunned amazement as they begin to realize that God is actually serious about this. His plan to impact and reach the whole world with his love will be built on this group of people. And to accomplish his purposes, his people will have to become acquainted with the concept of holiness. God invites us to be holy just like him. So what does that mean? Well, first we need to understand what holy means, right? At its root, it simply means set apart. To be holy is to be, to be set apart, unique, special, out of the ordinary. It is something that is reserved for a special use and is not to be used for anything else. I suspect you have some objects around your house. Maybe you have a favorite paintbrush that's only used for certain jobs. Maybe you have a kitchen utensil that, that you walk in and you see your kid using it another way and you go, no, because it's only used for this one thing all the time. In a strange sense, that's holy. It's set apart for a unique for a special use. It's only later that the word holy begins to be used in terms of moral purity. In the Bible, many things are said to be holy. Holy ground. The mountain of God is called holy. In the New Testament, the word saint is simply the plural of the Greek word holy. So holy in Greek is hagios, and the plural is Hagioi. You know what you are today? You're a group of Hagioi. But never been called that before, have you? In fact, turn to the person next to you and say, you are a Hagioi. Go ahead, do it. That's kind of fun. Hagioi. Oh, a new church name. Here we go. Hagioi Church. There we are. Saints are holy ones. That's what the word means. We've been set apart for a unique and special purpose in the plan of God. God spells out what holiness looks like in the form of ten laws, ten commandments. And before he gives them the first word of the law, he reminds them of his love. We just read it. He says, I carried you on eagle's wings. It's an image of true support. He said, you are my treasured possession. 
You are a kingdom of priests. You are a holy nation. You matter to me. The Ten Commandments teach us that obedience is not an obligation. It's not a duty, and it's not a grudge. It is totally a response of love. I do this, God, because I love you. When we are holy, when we are pure, our choice to obey is a way of saying, I love you, God. I love you so much. As the law is about to be given, the people are to meet with God. And they have to be prepared to meet with God. So in Exodus 19, the Lord says this to Moses, Go down and prepare the people for my arrival. Consecrate them today and tomorrow and have them wash their clothing. Be sure they are ready on the third day. For on that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai as the people watch. And then certain limits are given. They're they're not allowed to come up to the mountain and walk on it. If they even touch it, the Bible says they will die. And he tells them in this passage to prepare for meeting with him. He says, get cleaned up. Wash your clothes. You're kind of thinking, what? What? what, what? Wash your clothes? Really? This is, this is the big message God has for them. Wash your clothes. You've got to understand, washing their clothes was not about their clothing. It was about preparing. It was about getting ready to meet God. They're about to do something incredible. They were getting ready to meet God. This week, we've already mentioned, we're preparing for for Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving isn't just another day, right? It's not just another meal. It, It is special. In a sense, you might say it is holy. It is set apart. It's a Thursday set apart for a special purpose, so special that preparation is required. Last night I was at Jewel, 99 cents per pound, butterball ham, 14 pounds. It is now in my freezer. There is preparation going on. For us, Sunday is not just another day. It's a day that is set apart. It is a day that is holy. It's a day that we come to meet God. So here's the question. Did you wash your clothes? Not literally did you wash your clothes. But, but are you ready to meet God today? Are you ready to be in his presence? I mean, think about this. Even, even just coming here, do you think about it even before you get here? Or do you just kind of show up? Do, do you actually start to get your mind ready for, huh, I'm going right now to be with God's people and be in the presence of God. Just that little bit of mental preparation that I actually know what I'm about to do. Do you, do you leave home early enough so the morning isn't just a total rush? So that by the time you get to the parking lot, you're like, let's just go to Denny's. Ah, you know, get out of here. Although this could be Denny's technically, I guess. But anyway... Yeah, right. Very funny. Do you use Saturday nights well? Do you use Saturday night as a time to get ready for being with God? Or is it so cluttered and you're getting, you know, you're getting in at 4.30 and then you're expecting to sit and stay awake through a half hour of my talking? Good luck with that. What are you doing to wash your clothes? What are you doing to get prepared to be in the presence of God These are simple ways to wash our clothes, so to speak, to prepare for a unique meeting with the God of the universe. So what does holy mean? It means to be set apart, reserved for a special use, designated for something particular. And you got to understand this, the objects in the Bible that are declared holy are not holy in and of themselves. Only God is holy in and of himself. 
And only God can make something holy when he touches it. It's his touch, his passing on of his holiness that makes us holy. Objects become holy when they are set apart by God for God's use. Something unique and important happened in Israel's understanding of holiness as time passed. The holiness that sets God apart came to be understood as his moral excellence, his, his, his blinding purity, his perfect character. This God was set apart from sin. He was totally apart from that. In C.S. Lewis's Narnia Chronicles, one of the characters, Lucy, here's a description of Aslan the lion. Uh, Lewis intended Aslan to be a picture of Jesus. And if you read the books, you can't help but see Jesus all over. It occurred to her for the first time that she might be a little nervous if she came face to face with this magnificent beast. Mrs. Beavers, one of the many talking animals in the story, says to her, that you will, dearie, make no mistake, you will be frightened. If anyone can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just plain silly. And then Lucy asks this beautiful question, then is he safe? Is he safe? And Mrs. Beavers replies, safe, safe. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beavers is telling you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he is good. He is the king, I tell you. Now here's the problem. This holy God is in a relationship with a group of people at the foot of a mountain, and they are steeped in sin. He is also in a relationship with us and we are no less tainted by sin than the people we read about in the books of Exodus and Leviticus. Since the fall, every human being, without exception, with the exception of Jesus, has been marked by sin. We find ourselves torn. We're drawn to holiness. We're drawn toward God. We hunger for it. But at the same time, we're afraid of it. We long for it. We know we need it. And yet we fear we will be rejected by it. There are many statements in Scripture that teach the reality of God's holiness. Deuteronomy 4.24 says, The Lord your God is a consuming fire. Exodus 20, starting in verse 18, says, When the people heard the thunder and the loud blast of the ram's horn, and when they saw the flashes of lightning and the smoke billowing from the mountain, they stood at a distance, trembling in fear, and they said to Moses, You speak for us, and we will listen, but don't let God speak directly to us, or we will die. Don't be afraid, Moses answered them, for God has come in this way to test you, and so that your fear of him will keep you from sinning. As the people stood in the distance, Moses approached the dark cloud where God was. Look at Moses' response. It's as if he's saying, who said anything about safe? He's coming to put the fear of God in us. So we'll be done with the foolishness and destructiveness of sin. Of course he's not safe, but he is good. He is the king, of course. Don't be afraid. Draw close to him and become holy even as he is holy. 
There's an interesting reaction recorded throughout the Bible when people encounter God's holiness. It's just a, a constant theme of Scripture. It's unchanging. When people really encounter a holy God, they are overwhelmed and they are undone by the true sense of their own sinfulness. Look at Isaiah 6, 5. Isaiah responds in the presence of God, Woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Another version says it this way, My destruction is sealed, for I am a sinful man and a member of a sinful race. In Luke 5, 8, responding to the purity of Jesus, Peter said, Go away from me, Lord. Just get away. For I am a sinful man. Each of us needs to come to the mountain of God and see God in all of his power and all of his glory. We need to fall on our faces in the radiant light of his holiness and be overwhelmed by the reality of our sin in light of his purity. We need an Isaiah moment when we cry out, Woe is me. There, these are the moments when we stop making excuses, we stop rationalizing, we stop exaggerating, we stop defending the indefensible. You know what too many of us do? The problem with holiness is that we do not like the way it makes us look. We don't like what sin, what, what, what sin it reveals, the impurities, the defects, the shortcomings. And so what we do we do? Rather than comparing ourselves to the perfect standard, rather than comparing ourselves to God, who is 100% pure, we look around. We look around, right? And we go, <laughs> look at him. <laughs> look at her. I'm looking pretty good right now. I'm looking a lot better. I guess I'm not so bad after all when I look at this dirt ball over here, right? reality is we can always make ourselves feel better by looking down or looking to the side. It's the upward look we avoid, and it's the upward look that we need to take. The problem with holiness is what is revealed. It reveals the real you, and it reveals the real me, and we'd rather pretend that that person does not exist. What we're going to do right now is turn to Sinai and look at the giving of the Ten Commandments. On this mountain, God speaks. And when he speaks, he gives ten laws, ten commandments, the cornerstone of the ethical guidelines for his people. These teachings have literally changed the world. I'd like to do, uh, highlight some of the questions often raised by the Ten Commandments, just a few of them. Hopefully, either in answering them, you will have your question answered, or you'll be able to better answer the questions others ask when, when they come your way. So the first question is this, were Old Testament, were, were pre-Jesus people saved by obeying the Ten Commandments? Was the Old Testament way of salvation perfect compliance with the Ten Laws of God? Many people, many Christians believe the Bible teaches two ways to get to heaven, the Old Testament way and the New Testament way. The New Testament way, of course, is through faith in Jesus as forgiver and leader the Old Testament way was 100% lifetime obedience to the law. It was as if there were two gods. The Old Testament God, the God of the law, and the New Testament God, the God of grace. The God of law required obedience. The God of grace finally realized 
that this was just humanly impossible to live by the laws, so he came up with plan B. He came up with Jesus as the payment for sin. Now we got it right. The Ten Commandments were not given by God as a means for salvation. They were not given so people could earn God's grace, earn God's favor. Grace, by its definition, is unearnable. It is something I am given that I do not deserve at all. They were not given this list of rules to be followed in order to earn a relationship with God. Here's the thing. The law was given as a definition of what it means to have a relationship with God. They were given it so the people would have an idea, so they would have a picture of what a covenant relationship with God looks like. The law defines who God is and who we are in relationship with him. He was not saying, do this and I will love you. He's saying, if you love me, this is what you'll look like. You see the difference? You see the difference between the two? We tend to see the Ten Commandments as a list of do's and don'ts. They need to be understood instead in light of the first line of the chapter. I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. The law was a loving reminder of God's presence with them. It's not just a list of rules. It is the definition of the covenant relationship between God and his children. When we see the law this way, we begin to understand for, far more clearly why Moses comes from the down, down from the mountain and takes those two tablets and shatters them. What he's doing is symbolically showing what they're already doing. They're shattering the covenant relationship that they have with God. So no, the law in the Old Testament was not given as a unique path to salvation. In fact, when we read the Bible, speaking of the salvation of Abraham, here's what we read. Romans 4.3 says, Abraham believed God and it was counted and, it, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. Mentions nothing of him keeping the Ten Commandments, right? Nothing of obeying the law. We read in James 2.23 the same thing. Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. He was even called a friend of God. And this goes back to Genesis 15 that we've looked at, that, that, that chapter with the, with the covenant walk. And Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. Not because of the right things he did, because of his faith. The Old Testament way and the New Testament way are the same way. By grace, through faith in a Messiah. They were looking forward to his coming, we're looking back at his coming. But either way, both accept him by faith. If anything, the law was demonstrating to us, just how impossible it is for humans to be perfect. It was screaming to us, you need grace. You need God's grace. So we're going to move to the second question, and, and ironically, the slide will say it's question number one. I don't know what happened, but anyway, it says two on my sheet of paper. Let's believe it's question number two. Why is there so much detail in the law? Okay, so it's been kind of an exhausting week reading Leviticus. I mean, you're reading about mold, you're reading about bugs, you're reading about rats, you're reading about all this stuff, you're reading about the temple, you're reading about this, you're reading about that. 
Leviticus will legitimately leave you asking the question time and time again, what's up with that? That makes no sense to me. Why in the world does the law go into such precise and it's sometimes honestly seemingly absurd detail? You might even ask, if God is only concerned with the heart, why did he give so many details in the law? Let me point out a few of these that might be confusing. Okay, uh, This is a law about food. Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 11. Of the small animals that scurry around the ground, these are unclean for you. The mole rat, the rat, the large lizard of any kind, the gecko, the monitor lizard, the common lizard, the sand lizard, and the chameleon. All these small animals are unclean for you. If you... If any of you touch the dead body of such an animal, you'll be defiled until evening. Hmm. Gecko. Vincent, you're kind of a daring guy. Ever eaten a gecko? You ever wanted to eat a gecko? Oh, you do? Good. I guess then this command is important because honestly, I can't imagine wanting to eat a gecko. But it's in there. My, my kids, it's a youth pastor in Florida. And if you've gone to Florida, you know they have those little lizard things that, that sit on the sidewalk, and they kind of do push-ups. It's the coolest little thing. They're boop, 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 doing their push-ups. My kids in Florida would, would take those. They'd squeeze the jaw, and they could bite their tongue. And then they'd bite off the body. Yeah. And then they'd walk up to you and go, bah! and a lizard head would be on their tongue. I wish I had known this verse back then. Don't eat the gecko. Leave the gecko alone. Okay, Leviticus 13. This is about cleanness. If a man loses his hair and his head becomes bald, he is still ceremonially clean. And if he loses hair on his forehead, he simply has a bald forehead. He is still clean. So the question the world is wondering, I don't see your dad right now, Elam. Naya, what about a shaved head? Does a shaved head count as clean or unclean? The Bible doesn't say. Hmm, interesting. Laws about farming. When you're harvesting your crops and forget to bring in a bundle of grain from your field, don't go back and get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the orphan, the widow. Then the Lord your God will bless you in all you do. When you beat the olives from your trees, don't go back and beat the bough twice. Leave the remaining olives for the foreigner, the orphan, and the widow. Then when you gather your grapes in your vineyard, don't glean the vines after they are picked. Leave the remaining grapes for the foreigner, the orphan, and the widow. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. That is why I'm giving you this command. Reading through the Pentateuch, I mean, you're going to find all kinds of laws. You're going to find a law about what to do when someone gets gored by an ox. You're going to find what to do if a slave gets its tooth knocked out. You're going to find what to do if you find a spot of mold on your tent. All of these laws start to feel really overwhelming. These laws are so specific. They're almost too specific. What is going on here? Here's what we need to understand. Many of the laws of God are paradigmatic. These, these mean, this means they're, they're specific examples that they give us an idea of the intent of teaching a broader basic life principle. The law may be a very specific law, but its application has a deeper life lesson that could touch many situations that would never be covered, ever, ever covered. They were examples. They were not necessarily exhaustive. In our days, we try to make laws exhaustive. 
We try to cover every possible detail. Just watch a medicine commercial. They're absurd, right? I mean, I'm laughing these days. More often than not, the first thing they say is, don't take this medication if you're allergic to it. Okay. And then the other day, I see one about a vaccine. Don't take this vaccine unless you're, uh, if you're allergic to it. I'm like, you only take a vaccine once. How will you know? Oh, no, I'm breaking the law. What do I do? This is what Americans do. We try to spell out every detail. God doesn't spell out every one. He says, here's an example. Now figure out the principle and let it apply more broadly. Paradigmatic laws give a general principle that can be applied to countless situations. So the olive branch, for example. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the orphan, and the widow. God cares for the poor and the brokenhearted. You know what he's saying here? You don't have to sell everything you own. Sometimes you can just give it away. Why? Because you don't have to be so clutching all the time. God's saying sometimes it's just good to be generous. Give it away. Even if you could get 12 bucks for it at a garage sale, feel good about the fact that you gave it to somebody instead of squeezing that last little, oh, I got $12. Now I can go buy a new car. Okay. Whatever. I'm not anti-garage sale and neither is God. Okay, don't get me wrong. I love garage sales. They're great. There was a time in our life that that gave us macaroni and cheese, you know. But but are we willing to let go and say, God, I want to help other people and I trust you. I'll be okay. Now, the funny thing is legalism would ignore the principle, Right? I wasn't harvesting olives. I was harvesting figs. So this does not apply. No, he's, he's giving an example to say this is the way it should work all the time. This is the way it should work. Always ask the question, what's the broader timeless principle behind the specific time-bound example? Question three, and this one's incredibly important. How do we know which laws to obey today? I mean the gecko law. Can I eat a gecko? How do I know? How do I, if I go to some weird restaurant and they say, Gecko, can I eat it? Am I not allowed to eat it? The Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, the whole Bible is given for all of us. It is. It is a, it's an error to think that the Old Testament is for the Jews and the New Testament is for Christians. The whole Bible is for all of us. Yet I must admit, true confession, I eat pork. All right? We go to Green Lake and they have this buffet and they have these vats of bacon. Just mm, bacon, crispy bacon. And I'm not kidding, more than once, I've thought, I'm just picking it up, and I'm taking it back to my table, and I'm going to bake it out. I just, I, I love, I love bacon. I love bacon. And the law says, you know, no pork. I love shrimp. I mean, I could eat shrimp all day. Bible says, avoid the shrimp. I celebrate Christmas and Easter, even the 4th of July. Yet though the law commands it, I've never once celebrated Passover. We have one of two issues at play here. Either I am blatantly disobeying the law, or there are certain laws that are no longer to be obeyed. By the way, don't too quickly discount that we might be disobeying the law. We're, we're pretty good at just kind of going, ah, that one doesn't count. Oh, we better ask, does it count? We want to obey God, right? We should always sincerely ask if we're just kind of dodging a law that we should be following. The Bible is clear, though, through the teachings of Jesus, Paul, Peter, and others, that certain Old Testament laws have realized their purpose. They are no longer binding. The reason they were designed has been accomplished. How do we know which ones are to be obeyed and which ones are no longer binding? Let me, let me just kind of show you a picture. 
There are three basic kinds of law given by Moses. There's civil law, government law, community standards. That's one section. There's ceremonial law, religious practices, like, like sacrifices and what goes on in the temple. And then there's moral law, right and wrong, do and don't, thou shalt, thou shalt not. I will, I will admit to you that these categories, they're not always clear-cut but I think you'll find them helpful in answering. The Sabbath gets confusing, for example. Is it a moral law or is it a ceremonial law? Where does it fall? I, I think there are kind of elements of both in that one. Since Christ, our relationship to the law has fundamentally changed. So let's break this down. Civil laws were given specifically to Israel because Israel was a nation ruled by God himself. They were a theocracy. Certain laws had to do with the way the people were governed. And that those laws applied to them. These laws had specific application to that particular nation. Now that's not to say that some of those laws today are not useful in that paradigmatic sense. They give us a sense of justice. They help us to understand. But um, we are not necessarily supposed to do everything Israel was commanded to do as a nation. Civil laws and community standards were Israel-specific. They're not required for us today. We're told clearly, though, in the New Testament, in Romans 13, 1-7, that we're to obey the laws of our country unless those laws come in conflict with the laws of God, and then we're to obey the higher power and be willing to face the consequences of the nation in which we live. Another kind of law is ceremonial law, religious practices. These laws mostly involved worship, sacrifices, cleanness and uncleanness, food laws, and laws like that. All of these laws had a specific purpose. They were pointing to the coming of the Messiah. They were pointing to the coming of Jesus. Once Jesus came, their purpose had been realized. These were pointers. And once Jesus arrived, the pointers were no longer necessary. We saw him. Jesus himself said in Matthew 5, 17 to 18, I have not come to abolish the law, I've come to fulfill it. He's not coming to abolish the pointers. He's the reason the pointers existed. His coming fulfilled the reason for them. The final category, of course, is the moral law. And as you may have guessed, this part of the law is binding. It remains to today. The civil law went away when the nation went away. The ceremonial law was fulfilled in Jesus. The moral law remains. The moral law does not morph. It does not mold. It does not change as societal values shift. They are a timeless reflection of the timeless, unchanging character of God. God never changes. His character is timeless and it never budges. The moral law is a reflection of his changeless character. These moral commands reflect the nature of a God who does not change. These laws remain. They are constant. They are consistent. And they are as timeless as he is. There was a moment, a significant moment in human history that God took his finger and he carved ten laws on two stone tablets, the Ten Commandments. And these laws have impacted all of human history. The God who gave these commandments made this promise of a new covenant in Jeremiah chapter 31. I will put my laws in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they have to teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. God is not looking for a people 
who will dutifully live life according to a moral checklist. He has a vision for hearts that are joyfully, fully devoted to him. He has a desire for people who follow the moral law instinctively, with joy and willingly, not because they have to, but because they want to, not motivated by the drudgery of duty, but the reality of a beautiful relationship. That's a law written on the heart. I obey, not simply because I must, but because I choose to, because I want to, because I love you. And so the question comes down to this. Have you had your Sinai moment when God has written his law on your heart? Have you come to the foot of that mountain and seen the holiness of God and realized the depth of your own sin? And you were undone. You were just undone. And you realized there was nothing you could do to fix it. All you could do was depend on someone who could. And Jesus came, and Jesus died, and Jesus bled, and he was buried and rose again so that he could say, here's grace. Will you receive it? Wallowing in shame and regret doesn't get you a relationship with God. The shame and the regret remind us of our brokenness and that there is a holy God saying, here's my grace. Will you receive it? And you can. You can trust in Jesus as the forgiver of your sin and the leader of your life. And in doing so, the law of God will be written on your heart. And so, Father God in heaven, I pray that each of us, if we've not had it yet, would have our Sinai moment if we have had it, that this week during Thanksgiving, we would go back. We would go back to the foot of that mountain. We'd remember where we were and we would say, thank you, thank you, thank you for grace. Thank you for your grace. In the name of Jesus, amen. Very much hope you enjoy your Thanksgiving. Have a great week.